Hello, and welcome to the Snow Brains Podcast, where it's my job to interview the most intelligent people in the snow sports industry and pass their fascinating knowledge on to you, our listeners. I'm your host, Miles Clark. I'm a professional free skier, a professional mountain guide, a UC Berkeley molecular cell biology graduate, the founder and CEO of Snow Brains, and I've only ever been in one fight in my entire life. It was a street brawl in San Francisco. I don't think I landed a single punch, but I definitely got punched twice hard in the face and got fish hooked. The Snow Brains podcast is brought to you by Alta Ski Area. 8.5%? Nope. We ain't talking about beer. We're talking about the average density of Alta snow, the density that provides perfect powder flotation. My guest today is the legendary ski mountaineer, author, inventor, and big mountain scientist, Andrew McLean. In 2017, Powder Magazine voted Andrew as one of the 48 most influential skiers of all time. Andrew is one of the best ski mountaineers on the planet, having skied first descents on every continent and has been featured in a myriad of ski movies, including the big mountain skiing documentary, Steep. Andrew is the inventor of the Whippet self-arrest ski pole, among many other groundbreaking inventions in the mountaineering universe. Andrew has skied over 100 first descents all over the world. Andrew graduated from the very prestigious Rhode Island School of Design and went on to become a product designer for Black Diamond in Salt Lake City for 14 years. Andrew was even an avalanche forecaster for the Utah Avalanche Center for one year. Andrew wrote the most legendary, hilarious guidebook ever created called The Shooting Gallery, a guide to steep skiing in the Wasatch that is simultaneously considered the Bible and Holy Grail of steep skiing in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah. Andrew is a gifted writer and has written articles for Powder Magazine, Backcountry Magazine, Skiing Magazine, and many other publications. Andrew is most likely the very first professional ski mountaineer on Earth. Andrew McLean lives in Park City, Utah, with his wife Polly, their two daughters, and two poorly behaved canines. Andrew McLean is so goddamn interesting, he has so much to teach us, and has so many hilarious stories, that we had to break this interview into two parts. This is part one of Andrew McLean, the Big Mountain Scientist. Hello, Andrew. Welcome to the show. How are you today, buddy? I'm doing great. It's good nice. to see you. Yeah, you too, man. Really good to see you. We were just saying that you know we're supposed to be seeing each other in uh, Ushuaia, Argentina, right now, and headed to Antarctica right now. Which is I know. yeah, he's 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 wiping tears uh, away. <laughs> so, kind of sad. We're yeah, it hurts that we're not doing that. That's that's it's my favorite ski trip. It's got to be one of your favorite ski trips, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. If I had to cash in every ski trip for one trip, that would be it. It's just the combination of everything is phenomenal down there. That's a bold statement, especially coming from you. I kind of want to start here by just saying, I've been researching you, Andrew, and there's so much to unpack about you. You're one of the most famous yet enigmatic big name skiers on earth. And I want to change that today. I want to expose <laughs> you. I'm going to expose you to our audience. And, and right off the bat, I think the audience is feeling it, but you and I are friends. We've spent weeks together you know, in small sailboats in Svalbard, Norway, ski guiding. We've spent time in boats in Antarctica, ski guiding. And so this interview is going to be fun. It's it's going to be frank. And I'm really excited to have this venue so I can kind of dig in and ask you tougher questions than normal. So watch out. So are you the very first professional ski mountaineer? And if so, how the hell did you do that? 
Uh, I, I was an early early adapter in the U.S. I think there were depends on how you define ski mountaineer or professional ski mountaineer. When we started out, there was no such thing, and we'd be on a skin track and find a dropped power bar or something, and be like, "Yeah, you know, we're sponsored." <laughs> so it was kind of a joke, you know, to be sponsored because it was just backcountry skiing was nothing at the time, and you know, then it caught on, and uh, especially with the influence from the European gear coming in, the you know, Dina fits and just lighter, more reliable AT gear. Suddenly it just caught on in America. And because I was working at Black Diamond Equipment, it just took off. And, you know, at some point it was like, well, you know, you can have, you know, whatever gear you want and then, you know, we'll pay for your trips. And then at one point it was like, oh, and we're, we're going to pay you on top of this. It's like, really? <laughs> like, wow. So it, uh, I think it, it's much as anything, it was just kind of the right place at the right time. It just kind of, caught the wave as it was building timing is everything and, and we'll dive into that more in a little bit how many ski movies have you been in and which was your favorite been in about uh 10 to 15 of them I'd say my favorite was uh steep which was put out by sony and it was just a, a really cool well done documentary with a lot of interesting people in it you know doug coombs seth morrison ingrid backstrom Shane McConkey, um, yeah. Shane McConkey, yeah. And uh, I just thought they did a really good job with the filming and covering the whole thing and uh, kind of telling the story of big mountain skiing. You know, a wide variety with its European roots and then how it kind of transferred into the U.S. and where it was going. You know, each person was kind of different. You know, Shane McConkey was doing backflips off the cliffs and I was doing more expedition skiing. So it was, I thought it was interesting and well done. And we had a really amazing avalanche that we got caught in. So, And we are going to talk about that more <laughs> here today. What's your main goal when you go skiing? What are you looking for out there? Uh, just on a regular day, you know, try to make the best of the day. It, it's kind of, as you get more and more into backcountry skiing, you're just like, all right, you know, it's kind of overcast and windy and it hasn't snowed for three weeks. You know, I'm going to go try to find powder. And I think that, you know, after you've done it for a while and you find powder, you're just like, oh, yeah. You know, it's, you know, it's kind of like a little sleuthing mission to, you know, come up with a theory and then see if you can pull it off. You know, going out with a good group of friends, that makes a big difference, too. You're a very famous professional skier, and I get the feeling that you'd be doing the exact same thing without the fanfare. Do you think that's true? Yeah, for sure. And I kind of started to realize that uh, on some of the trips where I've been a, a guide, been on those amazing mega yachts. And you meet people that are, you know, just wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. And it was like, you know, if I had all this money, I think I'd be doing the same thing. <laughs> I'd still just I'd go be going, skiing. Be, be go skiing. I'd be on, you know, going to cool trips and going skiing and meeting people and traveling around. So, uh, yeah, I think I would. I might might have a, a few more pairs of skis and a fancier car. <laughs> but, yeah, basically the same thing. What's your biggest accomplishment in ski mountaineering? I have to say the biggest single one would probably be skiing the Alaska family, which is uh, Foraker, Hunter, and Denali. You know, that was a multi-year quest, and they were all kind of big geeks. 14 uh, years, right? Something like that, yeah. And it never, you know, we started out just skiing uh, Denali, and that was great by itself. And then I kind of got interested in skiing, uh, or then I skied uh, Hunter with Lauren Glick and Armand and... Uh, weedy and all of a sudden it was like oh you know i've done two out of the three of the family and looked over and it's like oh you know, i should give foraker a try so that took uh 
two tries to get it. And we just got it. We, it was a two week trip and we skied it on the last day wow. uh, that we possibly could. So I'd say that was probably the biggest single one, you know, longest time, most involved. We might, we might dip into that a little bit more later as we, as we talk about your ski expeditions. What would you do if you couldn't ski? I think I'd just uh, be a designer. I've always been, uh, even before I started skiing, I just like building stuff and you know, making stuff and putting things together. As a kid, I was always making models and painting stuff and burning airplanes and building kites and stuff. So I'd build stuff and be a designer. And you invented some incredible things like the Whippet, the ice axe ski pole, and we're definitely going to talk about that later. What scares you the most in the mountains? Uh, avalanches, for sure. Specifically, you know, maybe the head of a steep couloir that has a lot of wind loading in it. I've just seen a lot of them you know, fail. We had a, a mutual friend, Kip and Allison, you know, they're oh caught in an avalanche there. I was involved in early avalanche fatality. So, you know, hiking up the couloir and right at the head of it, when you get a lot of wind loading coming in, I think that's one of the scarier scenarios. I mean, there are ways to kind of uh, diffuse it, roping in, ski cutting it, things like that. But when I see things like that, especially when I see like TGR movies with people, you know, hucking their meat and landing on these big fat wind loaded pillows. It's like, mm-hmm. ah! <laughs> no. Oh gosh. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's probably the, the biggest single item. And that was so sad. Kip and Allison on Split Mountain in California. And I think I believe that was 2011. Uh, that, yeah. was, that was devastating. I was up at Points North Heli when that happened where Kip works. I saw him as he was leaving the Cordoba Airport. And that was the last time I saw him. And then obviously that trip just uh, had a big shadow over it. Yeah, and he was a big part of Points North. Yes, absolutely. Uh, what do you love most about the mountains? Uh, just being out in them. You know, a lot of times it's hard to get motivated, you're tired or, you know, conditions aren't perfect. And it's like, oh, and then you go out. And as soon as I go out, it's just like, oh yeah, this is great. You know, it, it's just things, there's kind of a magic to the mountains. You end up just having adventures and meeting people and, you know, come back. And it's a pretty rare day that I would ever be kind of disappointed that I went out. It's always good to be out in the mountains. I could agree with you on that. What's the funniest accident you've had in the mountains? We were down in Patagonia on the doing the Southern Patagonia ice cap around the backside. And we had uh, dug a big outhouse. We had a lot of snow and I went to uh, dig out the outhouse and the whole thing collapsed and I fell into it. I'd say that's, that's uh, and we were, you know, nowhere from running water. So I had to use a pancake scraper, a spatula, basically oh. scrape my pants off. It was totally disgusting. <laughs> Human feces. Oh, that's, that's, that that is, it's, wasn't funny at the time. Funny now. It was pretty funny at the time. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Especially if you were my other two friends that were there, but. uh, Oh my gosh. uh, um, Yeah, there've been, I don't know. Maybe not so much skiing, but I mean, just in the travel, you know, on the ice axe trip. I mean, there's just a lot of great memories that kind of come with the skiing lifestyle and the people. Oh, the culture, all that stuff. What's the scariest accident you've had in the mountains? Uh, Scariest one? I don't know. Maybe the second time I skied the Mowich face was pretty terrifying. You know, the first time was just this perfect corn snow. And uh, we just were able to link turns all the way down at Mount Rainier. So I went back with a friend, Mark Holbrook, and, you know, just told him how great it was and how awesome it was going to be. And it was just a sheet of ice. Oh. So it's yeah, really big, 5,000 plus feet, uh, 50 degrees, 
just unrelenting. And I think we made maybe one turn down the whole thing, just side slipped the whole thing. It was terrifying. Sounds like you have a wet avalanche at one point. Uh, it was just, uh, we tried that one twice as well. The first time we basically got avalanched off it just with a, it's a really tight choke. It was just a fire hose of a spin drift coming down. So the second time it was just two of us. So it was a lot tighter. So we weren't really getting hit with avalanche debris, but uh, it's just a really unrelenting technical route, repelling, setting anchors, natural anchors, bollards, pitons, and uh, just right off the bat, you're in super steep terrain and it just gets more and more committing from there on. Sounds terrifying. We can tell jokes. Oh yeah, that might help me keep me from crying. Um, and 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 on that note, this is not the funnest thing to talk about, but I think it's important for our audience because we've we've all lost friends in the mountains. How many friends have you lost in the mountains, Andrew? Uh, let's see. Of the people that I've been with, four. But mm-hmm. beyond that, you know, like Kip and Allison, and people that were acquaintances that I wasn't involved with the, their accident. I mean, it must be you know, twenty over the years seems like there hasn't been anything for the last couple of years. So that, that's been a good sign. Knock on wood. Have you ever been hurt while skiing? Uh, I cracked a rib once. And that's about it. That doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> How, many avalan- <laughs> How many avalanches have you been in? Uh, I've been buried once and I, you know, triggered endless avalanches you know where they broke right your feet and maybe went a little ways and then stopped mm-hmm. i've been caught and carried maybe five to ten times not bad and it's just impressive too that you've essentially never been hurt you've you've you know been able to avoid avalanches and then and then the lines that you ski it's just it's phenomenal and there there was one story about you taking a 500 foot fall somewhere is that is that bs mm-hmm. or is that real yeah yeah that was uh where was that, that? Was up at alta it was in the Alta ski area no. in the resort. Well, uh, that's not what I imagined that happening to you. <laughs> I know. Yeah, and it was um, kind of a weird circumstance. I, I went up, and they had just opened the gate for Main Baldy. And mm-hmm. I went up there, and I was waiting for a friend. And there was a big delay, so the whole crowd got ahead of me and went up. And I was like, oh, you know, now I, I don't want to ski Main Baldy with you know 50 other people. So I started down one that was earlier before that called Perla's, which is there's like Main Baldy and then there's Dog Leg and then way over to the side is Perla's. And it had a little drop to it that was maybe just three feet, you know, a, a little cornice. And I wadded up a snowball and threw it on it and it just kind of plopped. And I was like, all right, you know, this is this is going to be just soft powder. And so when the friend caught up to me, uh, it was like, all right, you know, let's go. It's been a while of waiting. And I jumped and landed on a little wind lip, and I thought it was just going to poof, but except the wind lip was actually really hard, and I, I tipped backwards, and I just started to fall backwards, and more than anything, I was just annoyed. I was like, ah, you know, damn it, you know, and it just blew this line that I just took off like a rocket, like, because it was so steep, and it was actually pretty hard underneath, and I just started, you know, spinning, and I, I hit once, and it kicked me way up in the air, and I just was, I was seeing like lift cliffs and rocks and sky and snow. And I was like, this is it. This is, you know, I'm going to break my back. I'm going to die. I'm going to hook up on a tree because there were trees there. And, you know, then I hit again, but it was so steep that it didn't really hurt. It just boomed me back up in the air. And I went about 
I went, I fell from the ridge line all the way down to where that ballroom traverse is. Mm -hmm. And I hit three times and just totally accidentally landed on my feet standing. Whoa. It's just, <laughs> but, but I mean, it's hard to even it just, understand. It just, yeah. It just totally stopped. And uh, it was springtime and there were a whole bunch of people up at the top of uh, Germania. And uh, I got a big, round of applause I'm sure you but I was, I was still kind of like i was just like oh my god you know i can't believe i'm i lived through that <laughs> a lone ski patroller came out because there's a ski patrol shack up there and he just skis out and we were only like five feet apart because he was on the traverse and i was right above it and he's like are you okay and i was like yep <laughs> he's like you got really lucky i was like yep <laughs> you know in a way it, it was it was really educational because it kind of taught me like when whenever that happens whenever you start to fall on really steep terrain you've got to get it under control like right there Quick. and that that's where kind of whippets help out because you know you're able to dig in stop or at least orient your feet underneath you uh, but yeah you, you don't have any time on really steep terrain you know the whole idea of like setting up a self arrest and getting out your axe and I mean, I, I think that's just a total fallacy. It's just, you're moving and, too fast. Um, that incredible story. Thanks for sharing that. You've been on ski expeditions in every continent and had first descents on every continent. Which was your favorite ski expedition? I think maybe Baffin Island in 2002, uh, where we did a kiting expedition with Brad Barlich. It was just the two of us. And, you know, there was no information on it. Uh, we just based the whole trip on uh, photos and there were polar bears and we built our own uh, kites, these big traction kites. And we just didn't know, you know, what we were going to find. We didn't know if the kites were going to work. We didn't know if we were going to get eaten by polar bears. We didn't know how cold it was going to be. We didn't know if the water, the ice was going to break up and drift out. And it just turned out to go the other way. You know, everything just lined up perfectly. The the kites were amazing, and we skied, I think, 19 new couloirs up there, and they were all just, you know, total five-star sweethearts, really, really, really good. So I think that one stands out. That Hearing about that trip almost, I've heard about it a few times, it almost pisses me off, because I just, <laughs> I'm never going to go there. I'm never going to do that. I don't know how to even execute something like that. It's just, that that trip is incredible. I I, I want to see more media from that. So where have you been on a ski expedition that you would not go back to? Uh, Iceland. Oh, really? T tell us why. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I went there on a trip. That's where uh, the steep avalanche was filmed. Okay. Steep. And um, it was right at the zenith of their economy. It was before the whole world economy exploded. And it was just unbelievably expensive. And we hadn't done much research on it. We're just like, oh, you know, Iceland is going to be a cool little thing. And remember getting there to Reykjavik and got in all night flight. First thing in the morning, uh, John Greiber buys a round of uh, coffee and muffins and he comes back and he's like, I'm not doing that again. It was 120 bucks. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> and the trip, the trip kind of went downhill from there. I mean, the skiing was great and the people were great and we had a good time, but I'm still kind of uh, emotionally and financially recovering from that one. <laughs> we didn't put much research into it the you know we looked at these really old maps from world war ii and uh, just under this idea that oh you know it's going to be this remote greenland type place and we get there and we found this area and we're like yeah we're gonna you know ski here this looks like great terrain and when we got there in 
the intervening years between World War II and 2000, or whenever it was, uh, there's an entire town with a ski village and chairlifts built Whoa. there. <laughs> oh, that that's a little, that's not as remote as you were looking for. No. So we ended up just freeforming the whole time. And, you know, the trip was very uh, disjointed, but, you know, it was still a fun trip, but I'm still a little scarred about going back there. <laughs> Deep scars right there. The New Yorker called you a mountain scientist after seeing how you kind of tinker and build things in your house, including those kites you were talking about for Baffin Island. Do you think that's an accurate portrayal, mountain scientist? I think scientist might be given a little too much credit. I like maybe <laughs> mountain tinkerer. I like that. I like <laughs> yeah, that. I'm not really, you know, I don't do it really in a scientific method, but I just like building stuff. So yeah, I do, you know, a lot of tinkering and a lot of building and you know, thinking about stuff. What have you built? Like a, what's a fun list of things you've built and designed to make life better in the mountains? did a bunch of carabiners. The first uh, Wiregate carabiner, if you're familiar with those, like the little paper clip. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the hot wire. And then I did the live wire. I did the peckers, the talon, uh, knee pads, the camelots. If you're familiar with the, those camming devices that you kind of squeeze and they open and shut. And that was that something um, that hadn't existed before, the cams? <clears throat> uh, they had existed, um, but it, I did a redesign on them that came up with a single stem and lightened them up and just kind of more streamlined them. So that, that was a big project about a year and a half. Wow. It's some smaller things like uh, ski leashes, the asymmetrical backcountry basket, some uh, Raven crampons, the uh, Venom ice tool. So a, lot, a lot of metal spiky things. That's a lot. And of course the whip it, which again, we're going to, we're going to get to. And, uh, and then just let's do this quick. Cause I almost don't believe this. Your resume says that you en- enjoy mountain unicycling. Do you really mountain unicycle? What the hell is that? It's my pickup line for Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I you learned do. how to ride a, yeah, I learned how to ride a unicycle when I was a kid and then nice. I gave it up for a long time. And then I went to a Banff Milton film festival and they had a uh, Chris Holm, video and he kind of introduced mountain unicycling so you know it's the idea of taking a unicycle and basically going off trail you know doing a mountain bike trail with it so i got one and uh ride it it's fun it's great around park city it's really good with dogs because uh you know you go a lot slower with a mountain bike you can just dust them but with a, <laughs> a unicycle you're just kind of you're going you know, eight miles an hour up eight miles on the flats and eight miles an hour on the you know, steep. So, and you're only, I'm only good for, you know, an hour or so. It's a pretty good workout and it's really good for skiing. You, know, you have to have a really quiet upper body. You can't be moving around. So I think there's a lot of crossover and you can do the whole thing in, you know, an hour. You're pretty satisfied with a good workout. Well, just one more thing that you're better than me at. Great. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a pretty low bar there, <laughs> well just the balance involved man that's that's gotta go that, like you said it's gotta really be i've, I've seen your backflips <laughs> the occasional so you were on the colbert report with stephen colbert in 2008 uh, promoting the movie steep the, the ski movie you've, you've spoke of here today the colbert report is one of the most popular comedy news shows of all time it averaged 1.5 million viewers per show and one was one of my favorite shows and so I'd like to play a quick clip from the Colbert Report right now for our audience of Stephen Colbert interviewing you and asking you about the avalanche that, that you are in in the movie Steep. Now, when that happens to you, do you say, 
Hell yeah, let's do some more. I do, or do you actually. Say, or do you say, really? Well, I'm a slow learner, so yeah, I was totally into it. Uh, I thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it was great to be alive afterwards, but, uh, you know, I keep coming back. It's part of ski mountaineering. After hearing that clip today, do you still feel that way about that avalanche in that clip? Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, if you, could, if you could teach avalanche classes, if I taught avalanche classes, and you could guarantee that it would be safe. The first thing I'd have everybody do is go for a big ride in an avalanche, you know? <laughs> just so that they kind of understood, you know, the power of it. And, you know, they'd have to, there'd have to be some like, you know, pop out and you'd be safe. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, the experience of it was, uh, you know, I didn't think I was going to pull it off. I thought I was going to be washed backwards off a cliff, but uh, you know, having survived it and lived through it, it's like, yeah, that was that was pretty damn exciting. It's a good a, a adrenal gland massage, if you will. Yes. <laughs> um, and you know, so I'm just so curious because I love that show so much. And so seeing you on it just blew my mind. Uh, what was it like being on the Colbert Report? Oh, it was cool. Yeah, I was a big fan of his beforehand and it was super fast. Like, yes. You, know, you just go in and, you know, he's like, boom, 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 boom. And he's, uh, you know, they, he has a lot of makeup on him. Like when you see him really close before yeah. the cameras. And it was almost like talking to this mannequin, uh, you know, Whoa. because he was he was so animated and he just had so much kind of stage makeup on. And, you know, he was just so quick, like everything was moving around. <laughs> I was just kind of hanging on for the ride, like, wow, this is cool. And then it was like, thank you. Goodbye. Like, yeah, cool. <laughs> and you you did great, by the way. And I love how you actually joked with him and, and made him believe for a second that skiers wear parachutes. And then yeah. you poked fun at the French. You know, oh, we're better than yeah. the French. That's why we made this movie. And he was totally into that. Oh, I knew I knew he was a French teaser. I love the <laughs> French, but you know, you got to tease him a little bit. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And did you guys rehearse at all for the interview? No, no, no. you just jump in there. Yeah, he, they have all these uh, green rooms set up, and you're just sitting there in the green room, and you know they've got all this food, and you know, he came in just like door flies open. He came in like I don't know, ten minutes beforehand, introduced himself, and you know said how it's going to go, and you're just like okay. And then, you know, they just come get you and you walk out and you know, there's a lot of uh, quick editing going on that he's really good at. Like he says stuff like, you know, stop point and they'll stop something and they'll cut to a different this and that. Interesting. So, you know, it was it was broken up a little bit more than it looked like. But uh, it, it was really cool to see, you know, the audience helped out a lot because it was a live audience. So uh, punch you up. Pretty fun to you know talk to him. And then uh, Jeb Corliss, the uh, bass jumper that wears all black was on the same show. So that was kind of cool. I got to meet Jeb and, you know, kind of felt like it was good, you know, extreme sport show. So it was fun. Agreed. You, you did great. Jeb Corliss is awesome. What an experience. You were also on ABC's Good Morning America promoting the movie Steep. Did those people have any idea how to talk to you at all? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was just totally, you know, Skiing was completely foreign. You know, they might have you know, skied Mount Hunter a few times, but they just you know had no idea. Like, you know, the whole backcountry. You know, oh, you take a helicopter. And I was like, mm, yeah, sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a much different uh, scenario. I mean, that I remember the Colbert one very clearly. I don't remember much about the uh, Good Morning America, except with Ingrid. She was a good sport. I had a great time traveling with her. So let's jump into your life timeline, because I think this is a really bring you to life with our listeners. I just think it's fascinating. And I really feel that each stage of your life was insanely impressive. And each stage presented challenges that led to excellence in the next stage, which resulted in you and being one of the most 
badass ski mountaineers on earth and you're still doing that and you still have a long way to go. So we'll just, we'll just start off with your childhood. What was your childhood like and where did you live and ski? Uh, we moved around quite a bit. My dad was an ophthalmologist, eyeball doctor. And we, uh, I first learned how to ski. My mom was the skier in the family. Uh, started, she was a ski instructor at Alta. So first turns were at Alta. Then we moved to uh, Vermont, Florida, Haiti, Connecticut, you know, skiing around there. So I skied teeny little mountains, Haystack, uh, Madonna Mountain, Mohawk Mountain, places like that, the East Coast. And then at a pretty young age, we moved to Seattle. And that's kind of where I grew up. And I grew up skiing at Alpental. I think that's where I got my taste of the steeps. You know, the whole upper chair there is a, a really steep line. Or, you know, every run is double black diamonds. I was on the racing team, so I had kind of a background in racing and a lot of good racing buddies. And uh, yeah, that, that was where I got my, my start skiing. That worked out great for you because I think Alpital is, is one of the most awesome, you know, badass little mountains in the Northwest for sure. And did yeah. you go to a high school ski academy? Is that what I read? Uh, after I graduated from high school, I uh, went to the Mission Ridge Ski Racing Academy for uh, a year. And that was that, over in Wenatchee. And that's in, in Oregon or Washington? Uh, Washington, that's yeah, Washington. over on the, uh, the east side. So you graduated from high school. You went to the academy for how long? And, and you did some coaching there. You got coach of the year. What, what is this? Uh, no, I did uh, one year of uh, racing. And I really loved racing, but I was never that good at it. I mean, in the grand scheme of things. And then after that, went to college. And uh, then I started coaching. So I went back to Alpental. I still had a lot of friends there. And I was a uh, coach for the Alpental ski team. Okay, great. Well, well, that, that moves us right into, so kind of phase two, as I have your phases written down here, is university. So after you graduated high school in 1981, you went to the Rhode Island School of Design, which is one of the best universities in the nation. And what did you learn there? I started out thinking I was going into architecture, but there's a subdivision of that called industrial design. And industrial design is like uh, the design of products like uh, furniture, chairs, um, you know, any, anything you have, the ice axes, uh, toys, um, any consumer products. And I just, I like that a lot more than architecture. So I switched to that and, uh, you know, it teaches you form and function and how to, uh, you know, make mechanical drawings and how to you know, make things fit ergonomically with the human body. And, uh, so it was a four year program in uh, industrial design. Well, it sounds like it really served you well because you ended up inventing some impressive things. And, uh, and let's get into some of the dirt, you know. So what's this about you almost getting arrested for climbing on the museum walls or the roof? or What, what happened there? It wasn't almost. It was full arrest. Yeah. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> oh, come on, Miles. I'm on credit. I, got my, I, got, I know. I know. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you might as well own it, right? I got my facts mixed up. So you got arrested for climbing on, on campus. And what, what happened here? Yeah, it was a friend of mine, my roommate, is uh, the guy that got me into rock climbing and we just read books about it and one of the techniques is uh chimneying you know stemming up and there was uh this these two buildings that were close together and they were on campus at the rhode island school of design and one night we decided you know we're just going to chimney up this thing because it was like the perfect width so we chimney all the way up not really even thinking about what building was what it was just like this perfect chimney and at the top you kind of had to lunge off to the side and grab onto the the roof and, and climb cool. over and as you know as soon as i did that we we're kind of i jumped down on the roof and there was like this click hum 
it's like, oh, that's kind of weird. You know, it must be like air conditioning or just something, something happened. But it was a uh, silent alarm. <laughs> <laughs> so we were hanging out on the top there, you know, pretty psyched. I don't know how we thought we were going to get down. It was probably lucky we did get arrested. And all of a sudden, <laughs> about, uh, you know, 15 cop cars show up. Whoa. And it's only a three-story building. And, uh, you know, they came in and we were just sitting there and they came up and they were all pretty psyched, you know, was like, what are you doing here? And we had, uh, beforehand, we'd read about climbing, how you need chalk. So I ground up a bunch of, uh, there was some wallboard, like a gypsum, you know, sheetrock. And I ground up some sheetrock for chalk and I didn't have a chalk bag. So I just put it in a, a baggie, like a little Ziploc baggie. So it was like a Ziploc Suspicious. baggie looking yeah with with white powder in it and you know so they're searching us all down they pull it out and they're just like oh you know check this out (laughs) (laughs) you know so he opens it up and this is you know the old days he does the full finger dip and he sticks it in there and tastes it it. in his mouth (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's just like uh it's chalk (laughs) (laughs) so um you know that was uh that was luckily it was on campus and uh so we had it we went in we talked and we kind of got a you know reprimanded but we were just like you know fully admitted to it it was just a mistake wrong building great chimney but wrong building right <laughs> and might you have also gotten arrested dangling from a train trestle somewhere is that is that, yeah, is, yeah. Is that another that was, that was uh oh, two for was, two i think that was yeah that was maybe a year later and there was a big train trestle that went over a bridge and it was stuck at like a 45 degree angle over the water. And we had, uh, we were going to go climb a uh, half dome that summer. So to practice for half dome, we wanted to learn how to Jumar, you know, how to climb up a rope mm-hmm. using a special knot called a Jumar knot. And uh, so my friend climbed up and he rappelled down. Instead of only going like 20 feet, he went the full 150 feet of the rope. Whoa. And he's down before trying to figure out the knot, whether it worked <laughs> or not. <laughs> so he's down at the bottom of the rope and he's, he's swinging around, you know, trying to get it to work. And I'm looking over and the whole uh, kind of freeway is stopped. And I'm like, huh, God, that's, you know, it must be traffic jam or something. Just watching Paul and nothing's happening. And all of a sudden the fire trucks start coming. It's like, oh, there's a fire. And all of a sudden they, they take the exit right near me. And I'm like, hey, I wonder must be around here and then they turn into the neighborhood that we're in and it was like oh no you know it's Uh-oh. right and then i see him turn into the the road that leads to us and yeah they showed up with you know fire engines and police cars and they sent out you know they all stayed back and all the sirens are off and they sent out one guy that comes out and he was like the the suicide prevention negotiator Oh, and he wow. calls up and he's like, hey, what are you doing up there? It's like, oh, just climbing. He's like, well, why don't you come on down? It's like, great, okay. So I climbed <laughs> down. <laughs> you know? And he's a super nice guy. He's like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, we're just practicing climbing. And he just starts, he just starts to laugh. He's like, oh, oh my God. He's like, you guys. You thought you guys were going to kill yourselves. Yeah. But um, yeah, I guess they, they thought that uh, he was committing suicide. You know, like a failed suicide where he was dangling at the end of the rope because he was kind of ticking and squirming around. So <laughs> oh he, he climbed back up and then uh, we both got hauled off. And uh, and then they just left us like it was out in Lincoln Woods, which is like an hour away. Around two in the morning, they let us go because nobody could claim ownership of the bridge. Nobody knew who owned it. So they couldn't do trespassing or anything. 
So they just let us go and we had to find a ride home. I love it. You got away with one and you definitely tested the uh, social services in your area during college. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> well done, sir. Well, I think the, uh, the third phase of your life is the Talon. So after graduating from the Rhode Island School of Design in 1985, you, found, you founded a company called Peregrine Mountain Products and created yeah. only one product, the Talon. It's a huge company. Yeah, we can have it. Literally, we can, yeah, you're right. It should have just been Peregrine Mountain Product. product. And, so what was the Talon and where did it lead you? Uh, Talon was a three-point rock climbing hook. So a lot of hooks just are, are like a fish hook. And if, if you're doing direct aid, like you're climbing up El Cap and you're not free climbing, like, you know, Alex Arnold, you're, you're using cams and pitons and nuts with a, a hook. You hook onto a little flake and you pull yourself up and hook another thing, pull yourself up, maybe put a piton in, pull yourself up. So the original hooks just had one point and they were kind of wobbly. Like when you lean onto them, they, they teeter. So this was like a tripod. So it had three different size points to it and you could um, you know you could swing on to it you could switch around the points things like that i uh, designed that and started building it and then started selling it and the first people that bought it was uh, black diamond equipment and they ended up buying uh, the entire design in the process of selling the design uh, i met john burka and he was like oh, you know you're a designer black diamond just started it had grown out of schwinnard equipment it was only uh, i think three or four months old at the time and but I knew knew about it through Chenard Equipment. So and Chenard Equipment was as Yvonne Chenard who started Patagonia as well. Continue. Right. Yeah, that was the uh, the original uh, like nexus of Patagonia was the rock climbing division. So he he was like, well, you know, we we need an industrial designer. You know, you know are you interested? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. So packed up my '69 uh, Camaro and drove down to Ventura, and uh, was down Ventura for about. Uh, Three, uh, no, actually, it was nine months. And then uh, Black Diamond as a whole moved to uh, Park City. That's how I ended up back in Utah. Fantastic, because that, that rolls us right into phase four of your life, which I have listed as Black Diamond. So you worked at Black Diamond in Salt Lake City for 14 years, I believe, as, as a designer. Yeah. yeah, 1991 to 2005, at least on your LinkedIn. Tell me about your experience there and about what you invented while working there. Uh, it was really fun to, <clears throat> you know, the company was really small. At the time, I think uh, at its lowest, it was maybe 40 people or something. I think nowadays it's probably pushing I don't know, a couple hundred, easily a couple hundred. And, uh, you know, it was growing and there was just full of uh, really avid climbers and skiers and outdoor people. And, you know, the com- everybody was so busy that it was just like as a designer, you're just like, you know, what do you want to work on? And it's like, oh, carabiners. Okay, good, great. Just, you know, work on them for a while. So, you know, there was a lot of autonomy. You could, you know, design stuff and find a climber that was really into, you know, big wall climbing or sport climbing or whatever and, you know, develop a product that was very specific to that activity. And I'd usually have like one major project per year, but then I'd have a, a few side projects. Like I'd work on a, I don't know, carabiner or camelots. And then off to the side, I'd do something like a, you know, the pecker or equipment or something like that. And what, what are you most proud of uh, building there? What, what affected your life the most? I'd say probably the, you know, the simplest would be the wire gate carabiner. Carabiners are super simple. There's the, the body, which is the bent metal part that you hold on to, And then there's a gate 
And the gate, uh, the traditional gates have uh, their bent metal, they've got a spring, they've got a plunger, two rivets. So uh, the wire gate was just replaced all of that with just a single wire loop. It was kind of, uh, the design had been around before. It was uh, used quite a bit in sailing. But uh, Black Diamond with Johnny Woodward, uh, we ended up refining it. So it was nice and smooth and even, and it made a big difference for climbing because, uh, you know, it's much more simple. One part instead of six parts for the gate. It made it a lot lighter and it worked better in a lot of situations. It didn't jam up with ice. It didn't have any whiplash to the gate. And, you know, originally we thought that it was just so odd and different that uh, when we sat around and talked about sales projections, they're like, oh, you know, I'll sell, I'll sell, you know, 4,000, I'll sell 5,000, I'll sell, you know, 800 type of thing. And I think within maybe one or two years, it was the number one selling carabiner. And a lot of that just had to do with uh, climbers adopting it. You know, they, they take it out, they go climbing with it and go back and you know, buy, replace their whole rack with them. So that, that was pretty satisfying. Wow, that, that is something to be proud of. That's amazing. And then the, the, I thought you were going to say the whip it, the self-arrest ski pole, because I, I've read that's that. That's my favorite. That's my favorite. That, that's your personal favorite, because I've read that that's the only American invented piece of mountaineering equipment ever. I don't know about that. Well, let, well, let's go with it because I like exaggeration. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, <laughs> so, how did you come up with that idea? There were some other self-arrest grips. There used to be this thing called an alpenstock. So, you know, when people walk around in the mountains, they'd have like a six-foot-long pole, and they would put a little hook on the end, and they'd use it for kind of you know hooking sheep or walking around or whatever. And then there were ice axes that were really long. So you could use them kind of as a staff. And then there were some self-arrest poles from Europe that were, it like had little plastic prongs to them. So, you know, they were more for looks. They didn't really work all that well. You know, you take them out and if you were booting up a couloir and climbing, you could, you know, the, they'd bend and break and they just didn't function that well. So uh, I just wanted to design something that was a hybrid like ice axe and ski pole. And uh, that started out pretty much as a side project. And I just made a bunch of different prototypes and then introduced it at one of the sales meetings and it kind of caught on and, you know, they decided to uh, fold it into the product line and started out just as a a small little side project. But it's cool to see that it's lived on through 25 plus years, maybe 30 years. It's been a long time. It's been around. So saved a lot of lives. I, I believe that, man. And I really think it's, 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 it's a standard piece of ski mountaineering equipment now. Uh, I don't know how the sales were, but uh, when I go out, when I have clients, it's something that if people don't have it, they're talking about it. And if it ever gets steep, they're wishing they have it. And I actually don't have one. So I, I need to get one. Oh, um, I know. I know. I didn't want to have to admit that here. Um, <laughs> so let's jump into stage five of your life. I'm calling Dawn Patrol. So you and your fellow Black Diamond co-workers, the legendary Alex Lowe and Mark Holbrook, would get up in the middle of the night and ski terrifying lines in the Wasatch Mountains of Utah before work. And you called your little clan the Dawn Patrol. I think that's right. And these Dawn Patrol sessions led to your famous book, The Shooting Gallery. Is that right? Uh, kind of. I mean, there were, we did a lot of the shooting gallery as Dawn Patrols. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shooting gallery was kind of separate. That was... Yeah, you know, I'd, I'd skied two or three of the classic Wasatch lines, you know, like a Toledo shoot and Superior and maybe um, 
dogleg shoot or something. And this friend said, oh, you know, you, now you've skied all of the, the major Wasatch classics. And I was looking around, I was like, I don't know, there are a lot more. So I started <laughs> to, you know, ski some of them and I just started keeping track and writing it down. And that, that's kind of what led to the shooting gallery. But the, the Dawn Patrol was uh, really Alex Lowe. I mean, that guy was uh, just the energizer bunny. And he, you know, he'd always wake up, he'd, go, he'd be at the gym at 6 a.m. in the morning. And, you know, during winter one time, I'd really wanted to ski uh, a main baldy shoot. And I was thinking, you know, in terms of, you know, you wait till the lift open, the ski area opens, you ride up, you wait till the patrol opens it. And I told Alex something about it. It was like, oh, you know, I'd really love to ski that this year. And he's like, oh, let's do it tomorrow morning before work. And I was like, no way. You know, Alex was just an amazing, you know, climber. It was like, and then, I, you know, my ego is just like, oh, well, you know, if Alex is going to do it, I, I'm going to do it. You know, <laughs> so, but I, I mean, to me, it was just like so far away and so big. And, you know, so we start out in the morning and, you know, bus trail up there. And it was, uh, I think, in October, like really early season. And, you know, got up to the top right at first light. It's a beautiful day. The sun's out. And we're just looking down Main Baldy Chute, and it's you know three feet of virgin powder with you know Alpenglow morning light on it, and uh, it was just like wow, you know. So we skied Baldy Chute; it was phenomenal, and you know made it back, and you know look at the clock, and it's like oh, it's only you know nine a.m. in the morning, and it kind of gave me an idea of like what was possible in the Wasatch, you know, because the access is so easy here. It was like oh, you know, you can do that. You can go to Wolverine Cirque. You can you know, go up superior, you can do things like that. And, you know, it was really Alex that was the, the driving energizer bunny. You know, I, I could do one or two Dawn patrols a week. But, I mean, Alex would just like, if conditions were good, he'd just like day after day after day after day after day. And, you know, he did some huge ones like uh, Bonkers and uh, Lisa Falls all before work. You know, I'd be like, what time did you start? Oh, you know, like three. And you do them solo, you know, oh, my headlamp went out. It was back when headlamps were really bad, you know, so it slowed me down. I got lost and, you know, I was wandering. It's just like, yeah, you could do stuff like, you know, wake up, read a chapter of a book, mount a pair of skis and go do a dawn patrol and then show up at work at, you know, 830. Wow. And in that vein, I have to steal this quote from your book that I want to read to our listeners. This is from the foreword written by Alex Lowe in the shooting gallery. And he says, the descents were sublime, but the most excruciatingly satisfying part of these outings was thundering the front door at Black Diamond where Andrew and I both worked just as the clock struck eight. Never mind that we were still wearing ski boots, sweat drenched ski clothes, and would be unable to remain awake past one in the afternoon. We'd made it to work on time having witnessed another sunrise, skied another shoot, lived a little more life than the rest of humanity on those exalted mornings. That's what Alex wrote. I, I think that just captures, you know, whatever it was you guys were doing. How many years did you guys do this for it? But it sounds like you guys were meeting at 3 a.m. and then making a plan and getting out the door. Yeah, I think Alex was around Black Diamond for two years. So we did, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, two winners with him. But then the, you know, tradition lived on. Bill Bellacourt, uh, Brad Barlidge, Mark Holbrook. And did you guys coin that Dawn Patrol? It's now this ubiquitous trend doing Dawn Patrol. Were other people doing this? Uh, no, yeah, there's nobody out there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, you'd see, you'd meet a lot of people and, you know, you'd be finished and they'd just be getting started and they were just kind of like, How, how'd you get up? It was like, oh, we just hiked up and what time do you start? That uh, The Dawn Patrol came from, uh, I guess there was a movie by that and it was kind of like an Army-Navy 
movie and there was you know the special force like the the dawn patrol and so they had something that was like you know at dawn we ride <laughs> there was a, like their battle cry and, you know so we were always just kind of saying that as you know a joke but well, it, it kind of became the dawn patrol well that's a, that's insane to the movie if you guys coined the term Dawn Patrol, I mean, that that's phenomenal because, you know, it's used in skiing, surfing, you know, so many of the sports, mountain climbing that, that we all do. So that's a, that's a really interesting backstory. And, and I love that you guys did it for years and it, it helped lead to some of the shooting gallery stuff. And, and just, man, it's, 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 it's hard to believe getting up that early and doing that before work. I love that. I love how he says, we could not stay up, you know, stay awake at work past one. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Black Diamond didn't really get their money's worth out no. of <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe in the end, though, just because the, yeah, know, that's yeah, that yeah. part of the culture, right? And that you yeah. guys, have, you guys both became these you know larger than life figures. Join us next week for part two of Andrew McLean, the Big Mountain Scientist, where we discuss the explosive growth of backcountry skiing and riding, accidents in the mountains, losing friends in the mountains, and Andrew's battle-hardened sense of humor. Here, the style of the writing came about because I just, you know, never really expected it to be like a real book. It's just going to be like, you know, it's just going to be like, here, Miles, you know, here's, here's this, you know, here's this book you can read on the toilet and get a laugh at it, that type of thing. <laughs> and now it's this legendary Bible of the Wasatch that you literally can't live in that area, be a backcountry skier and not have this book. Join us, won't you? Thank you so much for listening to the Snow Brains podcast. If you liked this podcast, please share with your friends and family and please subscribe. To find out more about Snow Brains, please visit us at snowbrains.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Snow Brains. This episode of the Snow Brains podcast was brought to you by Alta Ski Area. The editing of this episode was done by Robert Wilkinson. The music was created by Chad Crouch. I'm your host, producer, and creator, Miles Clark. Thank you for listening.